Welcome to the Being Human podcast, brought to you by Relate Malaysia. Join us in our conversations about what makes us human and why we think and behave in the ways that we do. We'll talk about mental health, emotional well-being, and how we can sometimes feel on top of the world. And other times, like life calls for a large tub of ice cream and a big spoon. So come on in, relax, and let's explore this puzzle of being human together. Hi, and welcome to the Being Human podcast. My name is Dr. Chua Suk Ning, and today I'm joined by Dr. Norman Cotterell. In this episode, we'll be discussing cognitive behavioral therapy, known as CBT, which is one of the most common forms of psychotherapy used to treat a wide range of issues and conditions. Norman is part of the team at the renowned Beck Institute and completed his postdoctoral fellowship at the Center for Cognitive Therapy at the University of Pennsylvania in 1990 under the direction of Dr. Aaron Beck. He is a founding fellow of the Academy of Cognitive Therapy and has served as the protocol therapist on a variety of large-scale psychotherapy outcome studies, including drug abuse, panic disorder, and the prevention of depression. He has also lectured extensively for hospitals, churches, and support groups, and has conducted workshops across the United States and in Brazil. Welcome to the show, Norman. Hi. Hi. Welcome. Thank you. <laughs> welcome. Thank you for welcoming to my show. Uh, I know. <laughs> welcome to my kitchen. <laughs> so uh, I know it's, you know, we are on a different time zone here. And, and so thank you for spending the morning. And I want to just start up with a fairly broad question, you know, for some of our listeners who may be unaware about CBT, you know, can you just, the, the brief, the simplest explanation of what CBT is and what it actually looks like in a session? It's based on an old idea from a Greek slave philosopher named Epictetus, if you want to go way back when. And the idea is that it's not the situations that make us feel the way we do, it's our beliefs about them. You, you think, therefore, you feel happy. You think, therefore, you feel frustrated. You think, therefore, you feel anxious and frustrated. It, it's really the thoughts and beliefs that count. And, and part of what CBT is about is to examining and testing out the ideas and beliefs that lead us to feel the way we do. And we can have beliefs about circumstances that we're in. We can have beliefs about emotions that we're experiencing. We can have beliefs about physical sensations that go, and, go through our bodies. We can have beliefs about thoughts that pop into our mind. Uh, and we can have beliefs even about urges inside of our bodies as well. And the notion of CBT is that these phenomena, circumstances, thoughts, necessarily emotions, urges, behaviors, other people's actions, are not totally accountable for our reactions. Our beliefs about them are really points of intervention. Our beliefs about them are represent hypotheses that we can test out in order to have a handle on how we feel and how we behave. What happens in session is that I ask the individual if they describe a situation that triggers frustration, anger, hurt, fear, or sadness, I ask them to rate the intensity of that emotion that they experienced. That is, when you felt that degree of frustration, how intense was that on a scale of 1 to 10? When you felt that degree of hurt, how intense was that on a scale from 1 to 10? Uh, just to get a measure of, of, at least of their own internal experience of that. When you felt that degree of sadness, 
Um, how intense was that? And then I even asked them, when you felt that degree of frustration or hurt or sadness, what did you feel inside of your body? What sensations did you experience inside your body? Did you feel your heart rate increase? Did you feel your muscles tense up? Uh, did you feel um, anything inside your head or your shoulders or, or your gut for that matter? And, and then after detailing the emotions, the emotions are primary in, in CBT. It's the first thing we, we ask about. And after asking about the sensations that went through their body, then at that point, then I can ask, well, when you felt that degree of anxiety or frustration, and you felt that in your stomach, and you felt that in your shoulders at that point, when you felt those emotions and those sensations, what went through your mind? What words, what images went through your mind when you felt that degree of emotion, when you felt those sensations, even when you felt that urge? Sometimes people experience urges on a gut, physical, visceral level. And at that point, I asked that question. In fact, it's probably one of the more important questions in, in cognitive behavioral therapy. And that is when you felt that degree of frustration, maybe it was a 10, what went through your mind? That sensation in your gut, what went through your mind? It's the most important question, or one of the most important questions. It almost sounds like you're saying situations don't actually matter. It's our beliefs and thoughts about the situation. Let's just say that the situations don't account entirely for our emotional and physical and behavioral reactions. Injustice matters. Oppression matters. People being unkind or brutal to one another, uh, that matters. But people can respond quite differently to oppression. They can respond quite differently to abuse because it may trigger the emotions and their ideas and beliefs in that. I kind of got that impression when, when I, and actually this, in my last lecture in undergraduate was given by Viktor Frankl. He was describing uh, how he survived Auschwitz. Now he could have been killed easily, but how he survived that with his wits relatively intact. And he said there were two things that enabled him to survive that. Um, number one, to keep his sense of humor. He wasn't gonna let the Nazis take that away. And number two was to find a reason for living. And at that point, he said his only reason for living was to find a reason for living. The only purpose that he could find was to find a purpose. The only reason and thing that provided him meaning at that point was to engage on that search for meaning. In fact, that was the title of his book, alluding to his search for meaning. Auschwitz mattered. But even though it mattered, there are different ways that people could respond to that, to that circumstance. And he found his way, other people found theirs. I recently listened to Edith Egger's The Choice. She also survived Auschwitz, and she was heavily influenced by Frankl, but she had her own set of beliefs and attitudes and experiences that were triggered by her experience in Auschwitz. And of course, uh, anyone from Primo Levi to others have had their own unique experiences of absolutely horrific experiences. They, they did matter, but people have different beliefs, perspectives, lessons that they can draw from those experiences that reflect their personality, their character, their values, their very being. Are there then better beliefs than others? So CBT has this term, dysfunctional beliefs, and every time 
I read that, I feel like there's something wrong with me, you know, for seeing the world that way. And, and it doesn't make me feel good to see, you know, someone label my thought as dysfunctional. Yeah, that's, that's, that's a good point. Yeah, because functional means does it work? And functional means does it function? Is it working for you? And I think the ultimate judge, when I see a client, is whether it's working as I ask them. If they see me, they've come to the conclusion that there is something that is not working in their lives. There's something that is not functioning in their lives. And so if something is not functioning, either in terms of how they regard their emotions or their actions or their relationships, um, then the final arbiter, at least in my opinion, of whether something is functional is them. Um, you know, for example, if they're a true believer in what they're doing, then nobody may be able to steer them otherwise. I mean, it would be like asking, you know, if somebody determined that Barack Obama being a member of the Democratic Party was not functional, and they tried to convince him to leave the Democratic Party and become a Republican, because obviously uh, being a Democratic member of the Democratic Party is not functional, doesn't work, it's, it's a sign of mental illness, he, he's a true believer in being a member of that party, and he would say, no, <laughs> it works for me. So, uh, so um, that, would, that wouldn't work. If a person uh, who's labeled as being psychotic has hallucinations and delusions that people, or has beliefs or experiences that people regard as being hallucinations or delusions, and they're true believers in those, um, they will not regard those as being dysfunctional. You have to find something that they regard, or that if they're seeing you, that they regard as being a problem, that they regard as not, being, as not working out for them. And it may not be the uh, experiences that they or themselves label as being hallucinations or delusions. It may be asking them, is there anything in your life that you would like to change? Is there anything in your life that potentially is not working? And maybe something totally different than, let's say, their experiences that people may regard as being hallucinations or delusions. It may be the fact that they want more love in their life. It may be the fact they want more meaning in their life. It may be that they want to do more things that um, con contribute to that rich, full, meaningful, pleasurable, um, engaging life. So the therapist doesn't get a say on what's dysfunctional. It's not like the therapist is the judge of thoughts and goes like, "This is you should think this way and you should not think this way, and that's dysfunctional, and you know that's mm -hmm. that's that's a bad way of thinking." So the therapist doesn't get put in that position. Yeah, we just provide the, the client tools where they can do that themselves. We provide client tools where they can assess to what degree is this working and tools that they can use to make the decision whether to accept the circumstances or seek to change them. That old saying that God grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change, to the courage to change the things that I can, and the wisdom to know the difference. That is the dilemma that they're faced with. What is it they can change, what they can't change, and either have the certainty to accept or the courage to change. Now, some people might have the opposite perspective. They might have the idea that, you know, I don't want to accept the things that I cannot change. I, I'm, my mission is to change the things that I cannot accept. And my, my parents' mission was that, in terms of working in the civil rights movement. But it, it takes a degree of faith in your mission, whatever it might be. Um, circumstances that you regard as being unjust, whether it was segregation or people excluding you 
from the restaurants, in the case of my parents, and taking actions to change that, uh, to have an activist perspective. But I think as Gandhi said, political transformation starts with personal transformation. And often for people to be able to have the faith and the ability to change such circumstances, they need to change something within themselves often enough so they believe that their actions can make a difference, whatever they might be. Um, so we so always I'd start spend, back with the self. Um, unless we're already there. But yeah, that's it. I, th I think even Eckhart Tolle went further. He said that if you don't do the personal transformation before the political transformation, you can create a, a living hell. Sometimes I have clients who then would struggle with this idea, you know, they, they're sort of buying into function versus dysfunction. And then, you know, the very idea that there's a maybe more functional or better, you know, healthier way of thinking versus not, it becomes a should, you know, and then becomes a source of guilt. Like I should think this way. Oh, I know, like, I should not think this way. I know that it's not functional to think this way. And then they start to feel bad about it. So, and then they have certain beliefs about functionality and dysfunctionality. Oh my God, if I have, if I have what a thought that I regard as dysfunctional, oh my God, my life is ruined. In this case, you're dealing with, with their beliefs about functionality or dysfunctionality. So is there no mm -hmm. end to, is there no end? I just feel that, you know, we initially start with, you know, let's say a thought about, um, let's say achievement, right? And we go, you know, is it functional versus dysfunctional? And then we get in, you know, and, and often I, I find people with perfectionistic tendencies, you know. Um, yeah, I know. And then what yeah, that... you're right. People can, and that's probably what characterizes people with that uh, obsessive tendency. And um, who, um, who have an absolute intolerance uh, for uh, thoughts that they label as being dysfunctional or wrong or bad. And then you can ask, you know, and they're, they're seeing you because they're caught up in ruminations. They, 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 they have they regard as being dysfunctional or problematic thoughts about the past. Why? 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 Why about the past? They're pushing that rewind button. Why? 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 And they're caught up in these thoughts they regard as being totally dysfunctional, totally wrong. And then you might have people who might be pushing the, the fast forward button. In looking in terms of looking at the future, they say, "What if? What if? What if? What if? What if?" <laughs> and they and they have dysfunctional thoughts. They think about the future, and and they are um, wrapped up in thoughts that they regard as being dysfunctional. They wrapped up in thoughts that they regard as being wrong and awful and horrible, and 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 because of that, they they find they're not enjoying life as much as they otherwise would. Because of that. They find they're not intellectually and positively engaged in as many things they'd like to be engaged with. Because of that, they're not, they don't have time to, to uh, express love to those that they care about or care for. And because of that, they're not engaged in a meaningful pursuit. I mean, do you want your life to be about, you know, neutralizing unwanted thoughts? Or do you want your life to be about doing things that are more valuable and important for yourself or the world at large for other people. And they don't do things that provide them a sense of accomplishment. And their beliefs about these ruminations, about the past, the, that's the um, rewind button, their beliefs about these worries about the future, those are the, that's the fast forward button. 
is keeping them from really enjoying the moment. Well, if, if I asked them, well, how is the strategy of trying to, of labeling these thoughts as being dysfunctional, how is the strategy of trying to control these thoughts? Is that enabling you to live the kind of life that you want to live? And they say, of course not. That's why I'm here. <laughs> so <laughs> then, then I would say that that, that strategy isn't working and let's find another approach. And, and they may be open to that at that point uh, as far as finding things that they can do. And then often the approach of that is, is accepting these thoughts, having a, a friendlier attitude towards these dysfunctional thoughts and being able to engage in things that are more valuable and meaningful in life. Uh, but it's changed their perspective on those internal phenomena of words, images, and pictures that run through their mind, either about the past or the future, or maybe even sometimes the present. One of the things that um, CBT is criticized about is that it's too mechanistic. Um, and it's like too manualized, you know, like you just have like a book and you just follow the book and you, where's the art of therapy and, and the connection, you know, what, what do you say about that? That's a valid criticism. I mean, that is, I mean, and that may be a reflection of the personality, the character of the therapist. Yes, certainly the person is starting off in any kind of therapy. They want to do it right. And, and you, you get a cookbook and cookbooks are wonderful, you know, as far as, you know, learning how to make something, something. But if you become dependent upon that cookbook and whatever quote-unquote school that you belong to, it stifles a bit of the creativity. It stifles a bit of the improvisation. It stifles a bit of what of you really being present with the client. Uh, so absolutely, and that's what a person can struggle against. Maybe at the very, very beginning, a person may rely on such things, but absolutely the, the art comes out uh, perhaps with experience and the art comes out perhaps with, with at some point, throwing away the book and really just engaging with the client and incorporating what you know, be it CBT or anything else, to really, really be there with them and, and to work with them. But yeah, that's, I, that, that's a, a, a valid perspective for a variety of schools. Because I know there's a stereotype of the, of the psychoanalyst rigidly sitting behind the patient with a couch, you know, writing down what the client is saying and not, and not saying anything and being the tabula rasa and, and, and people rigidly adhering to that format and people got sick and tired of that. And they changed that format because it, you know, in, it, it seemed to be rather cold and analytical. How do you know when you're too dependent on the cookbook, you know, this recipe um, that it's become less helpful? Yeah. Uh, you ask the client. That's the importance of feedback. You ask, is there anything that I've done in the session that has rubbed you the wrong way? Anything that has not worked for you? The importance of asking for feedback is determining whether, in fact, are you being too rigid or too flowing? Are you being too mechanistic in the session? And that tendency may often be more reflective of the personality and the character of the therapist than just the school that they happen to be a part of or the schools that they happen to be influenced by. I took a workshop with Ray DiGiuseppe, who had been trained by Albert Ellis. And when I saw sessions of DiGiuseppe, and you know the difference between Ellis and Beck, Ellis was much more confrontive. Ellis was, was into disputing thoughts. Uh, Dr. Beck was more into examining and testing them out. 
And so I was expecting, since Ray DiGiuseppe had been trained by Alice, I was expecting a much more confrontational approach. I was expecting an approach that was more like his teacher, Ellis. You know, <laughs> when I saw Ray DiGiuseppe, his style reminded me more of Dr. Beck's. His style was looked like he'd been trained by Dr. Beck rather than Albert Ellis. And it may have been more a function of his personality and his character and his way of being than anything else. And maybe the differences between REBT and CBT, rationally emotive behavior therapy of, of Albert Ellis, and cognitive behavioral and cognitive therapy of Dr. Beck may have been more a, a function of their personalities um, than anything else. So we, we have different teachings that we are influenced by in psychotherapy. I've kind of learned that everybody takes everybody's workshop within the school. So we pull together um, our experiences, our trainings, our, our methods of conceptualization. But what we bring to the table are really ourselves, uh, the totality of ourselves in session when we're with the client. And we use what we regard as being the skills and the lessons that we've learned over the course of our trainings and of our course of, of seeing clients. CBT is, I would say, one of the most popular therapies now. It's certainly found to be effective in treating a variety of, of uh, mental health conditions, but not just, you know, the severe ones, but even just helping someone with an acute stressor who's going through a difficult time. You know, it's been used for brief interventions. It's been used for self-help. Why is it so popular? Like, did you, I mean, like facetiously, did you guys bribe the man out there to start advocating for this? Do you get a cut every time somebody uses CBT? No, um, that's a good question. I was told, I mean, back in 1978, um, I, when I was in college, they didn't have an advisor in clinical psychology in my undergraduate college, as I was interested from, from that point, until my junior year. And even my senior thesis advisor said, oh, you're interested in psychotherapy? You mean the talking cure? <laughs> and, <laughs> and he said that somewhat derisively because that wasn't, that wasn't real a real thing. Yet I was told by the clinical advisor back in 78 that the only version of psychotherapy that he thought had a chance was that within the cognitive behavioral schools. And they were really in their infancy at that point in 1978. Yeah, sure, there was Albert Ellis, but he wasn't calling what he was doing a CBT. He called it rational therapy, maybe rational motive therapy at that point. And because I think he told me they were the only ones who were actually taking the time and the effort to see if what they did worked, to really test to see what impact it has on people's lives. So I suppose the popularity of it is that um, it has the ability to, to determine, is this working? We're interested in whether this is working. We're interested in the clients of experience outside of session. Are their lives improving? So I, I think the very interest in feedback, uh, the very interest of, is this having an impact on a person's life, means that over the years, with often on exceptions, we are getting closer and closer and closer in what makes a difference in an individual's life. And so I think the popularity may be due to the fact 
that if you're interested in whether something works, people are more likely to do something that works. And when you do something that works, you enjoy your work all the more because your clients are improving. I think Janet Malcolm either wrote a book or an article about psychoanalysis calling it the impossible profession and, and talking about the level of pain and frustration and stress that psychoanalysts experienced in doing their work. If she interviewed, it was somewhat a controversial book as far as the ones that she, that she interviewed. But it was the sense of impossibility was that they were working in a modality that was less interested in whether it was working for the client and more interested in the purity and orthodoxy of the methods and, and, and became somewhat, somewhat calcified in the approach. Now, there, there are some people who are changing that. Jonathan Shedler, among others, is a person who is a, in the psychodynamic school who is very, very interested in whether it works. Um, Lester Laborski, whose people I worked side by side with, in his support of expressive therapy was a school of psychedelic therapy that was interested in whether it worked. And even people in that school, the psychedelic schools, Jonathan Shedler mentioned, there's a either confluence or influence of these approaches so that they're, they're actually um, converging and becoming closer and closer together. Now, I think Shedler thought that CBT was becoming more like dynamic therapy and maybe dynamic therapy is being more like, like CBT in terms of being interested in whether it works. But um, if there is a convergence of these modalities, even Dr. Beck said that there'll come a point when there aren't any schools of psychotherapy. You'll just have good therapy, <laughs> you know, therapy that works for the clients, and therapy that doesn't work for the clients. So I think maybe the popularity is that hopefully we're getting closer uh, toward things that work for the client. Perhaps away from specific schools of therapy to, I think, what Dr. Beck said, which is, is just psychotherapy. Actually, I remember some time ago I was reading some meth from um, Weiss's, um, I, forget, I think his name is Joe Weiss's uh, School of, Psych of Psychoanalysis in San Francisco, the psychoanalytic uh, school in San Francisco years ago. And when I was reading their materials of psychoanalysis, to my eyes, it looked a lot like CBT. And of course, they were saying, well, if, <clears throat> if Freud had lived to be, you know, 160 years old, he'd be doing pretty much what we're doing. And it, this ego uh, psychoanalysis, I think is what they called it. Well, maybe they're right, that there is a bit of a convergence going on. And the popularity may just be, we're getting closer and closer to what's working for our clients because of greater interest and greater ability to discover what works for our clients, really to ask them, how is this working for you? Feedback-informed therapy, which was being somewhat radical for that purpose, embodies that, it is asking for the feedback within the session, at the beginning you, of the session, at the end of the session, and also between sessions, determine whether it works or not. Do you think that there are people that CBT is less effective for? And now elaborate on this question. You know, there are... I think often new therapists, particularly, who might, as they are learning CBT and then they try it and then they come back and go, it didn't work, it didn't work, and then I had to like change it. You know, the client didn't didn't like what I was doing, and you know there were no thoughts, and it just you know so, you know the person just wanted to talk, 
and share. And then I was trying to force this person into doing something else. So, you know, do you think there are people that are less inclined to CBT and it's just not effective for them? Yeah, there might be some therapists who may not be right for the individual, just based on what the therapist brings to the table. Every time that, I mean, it was initially Dr. Beck's model, the Beckian form of, of um, cognitive therapy was initially designed purely for depression and, you know, not for anxiety. It was just, you know, Beck knew depression. He wrote the book on depression, causes and treatment. It was designed specifically for depression and nothing else, that, that model. But then people who were really, really good with anxiety disorders adapted it for anxiety. And then people who are really, really, really good with uh, addictions adapted it for addictions. And then people who are really, really good in working with children adapted it for children. And then people who are really, really good in working with psychosis adapted it for psychoses. And I, I think it was really just a matter, there are some people who are really, really good at these particular kind of modalities and they found ways based on their experience and their training and, 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 and what they knew about working with individuals to adapt it in such a way uh, to work for it. And so I think that there, there's so many things that a therapist brings to the table and that the model, the, the method of conceptualization with CBT was so flexible that they found ways to take their experience and expertise and adapt CBT for that purpose. As far as people that I thought it wouldn't be appropriate for, I've seen people who were brought to me for cognitive therapy who's suffered from dementia or early stage Alzheimer's. And I would have thought that CBT would not be appropriate for dementia. And in fact, uh, what I would more often do when I saw somebody with dementia, I'd bring the family in and help them cope in being caregivers for a family member uh, suffering from dementia. But you know, I, I found that even just letting the person tell their stories. I found that letting them share their experiences of letting them practice, you know, at least some things in session made more of an impact than I, than I thought. I mean, there is, I forget, there is a, um, speaking of forgetting, um, I forget there was a, um, a neuroscientist who visited Dr. Beck, who, who specialized in memory. So it's ironic that I forget his name. And um, all, all I remember is that he was, he is a, rock musician, and he had a rock band called the Amygdaloids, um, as well as being a neuroscientist. And um, he said that it was a, totally wrong to think that memory was just in the hippocampus. But he basically told us that memory is in every single cell of the body. I said, I can teach planaria how to do tricks. You know, it, memory is not just in the hippocampus. Memory is in every single cell. It has a memory. And in, in the book Habit, it was Charles Duhigg, he was summarizing some research showing that even people with dementia can learn new tricks. They can learn things. They may, not, they may forget that they've learned these things. They may forget they learned them, but they have the ability to learn motor functions, behaviors, uh, much more than we thought possible. So who knows? Maybe the next frontier in CBT may be more so in working with people suffering from dementia. I would have said it would not be appropriate for that, but there are people who specialize in dementia, and I've looked it up, who are finding ways to adapt CBT for that, which I, I thought would have been a fool's errand. But at, at this point, it's, it's being demonstrated otherwise. 
I think even Dr. Beck himself said that every time he said that CBT was not appropriate for something, somebody who specialized in that field found a way to adapt CBT for that issue. One thing that CBT is well known for is being short term. You know, there, there's a limited number of sessions. It's not for years. The efficacy trials are usually about 12 sessions long. But doesn't that put a lot of pressure on people to change in 12 sessions? And why 12? You know, why not? Why can't we see a CBT therapist for years? Oh, you can. That happens. Um, I think it's regarded as being time limited. And probably for the course of those sessions, they, they had 12 sessions just for the purpose of research. But that's what happens in research can be very, very different than what happens in our offices. Uh, we don't exclude people with comorbid problems. We don't exclude people if they happen to have more than one or two diagnoses or that are, that are labeled, labeled by the DSM. What happens, though, is that it's time-limited because the goal, or one of the goals, is to teach the client skills and abilities for them to handle their own problems, to examine and test out their own beliefs to teach them skills that they can use long after the sessions are over. I think one thing that can be demonstrated, even after those sessions, is that there can be a bit of a sleeper effect, where the improvement can continue long after the sessions are over. There have been some studies I think have demonstrated that, where even after termination, after follow-up, three-month, six-month follow-up, that people were still able to improve. But from having learned skills and tools and techniques that they can use long after the official sessions are over. So um, there are people that I have seen for more than the obligatory 12 sessions. Um, It's still the same perspective, that these are tools that you can practice in between sessions. What I provide during the hour that I see you is a chance for you to receive coaching, to receive troubleshooting, to talk about stuck points in your own journey, for me to provide or suggest or provide practice uh, that uh, in, in using the tools that you could use in between sessions. But ultimately, the most important thing is what happens in between the times that we meet. And what I provide is really just a chance to recoup, provide some accountability, and practice in using those techniques. So I wouldn't regard it as necessarily being short-term, but I could describe it as being time-limited. And that may just be a function of, after a while, when you look at the goal sheet, and I have the the, the list of goals right in the chart, or right on the screen, because I'm doing Zoom sessions at this point, is that they come to the conclusion that, well, right now we're just doing mop-up actions. Right now, we're just doing consolidation of skills that I I already have. And right now, I feel pretty confident on my ability to use these tools to handle my own problems. So I think the time-limited nature of it may be a function of having tools that work for the client and them, at that point, feeling fully confident in their ability to manage them without having to see a therapist every week or every two weeks. This is a perfect ending uh, to the podcast. Thank you very much for your time and for joining us. Uh, You're most welcome.
And thank you for listening to this episode of Being Human. We'll be hosting guests on a regular basis, so be sure to tune in for some more insights on how we can understand ourselves better and learn to live life on our own terms and one that's meaningful to us. My name is Dr. Chua Suk Ning, and I look forward to sharing some more valuable insights from the world of mental health with you very soon. Thank you for listening to the Being Human podcast. To find out more about Relate Malaysia's online therapy services, visit us at www.relate.com.my or email us at inquires at relate.com.my. You can also find us on Facebook and Instagram. Until next time, remember, we are all more human than we are otherwise. Be kind to yourself and take care.